Welcome to Mavericks. I'm Joey Garcia and today's episode we'll be speaking to the mother of blockchain. She's one of the world's most prominent blockchain lawyers and also a member of Wharton's Cypher Accelerator program, which supports the development of projects in the blockchain space. She's a friend and a true maverick. It's Joshua Ashley Clayman. This is Mavericks, brought to you by Zappa Bank. So Josh, awesome, awesome to have you here today on our Mavericks uh, podcast. We, we've, we've, we've known each other for a long time. Um, and it's really funny because I read things about you here, there and everywhere. Um, but the one thing that always sticks in my head, I see you referred to a lot as the mother of blockchain. Now I know that you, you, know, you can interpret that in many different ways, but how, how did you sort of come about to get so involved with this universe? What, what was the, the birthplace for that sort of development? So I, thanks for the question <laughs> and thanks for the compliment. <laughs> Um, I'd love to say that it was like I was struck and I just had to get involved, and it was nothing of the sort. Literally, I had been a finance lawyer for many years, and I started hearing about smart contracts, right? And this idea that large banks were going to start using them and they were going to start reducing legal spend. And since that was what I did, I thought, well, wait. I am legal spend. Like, I need to figure this out. I need to defeat these smart contracts or at least find a way to make sure that what I do isn't commoditized. But as I started looking into it, I mean, I had heard about Bitcoin and things like that for years before, but I didn't think it would be part of my professional life. But as I started looking into smart contracts and then blockchain, I realized like things that I had thought that I had abandoned years ago in college right? Like that I was so interested, like game theory, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden the yeah. finance work that I was doing and this game theory stuff that I had left behind, it was connected. And I, that's when I fell in love with the space, going to meetups, going to conferences, getting some early clients. And from then on, I knew like this was my tribe. Amazing. And, and how, how, how much have you seen it sort of develop? So in those early days, that was like years ago, um, lawyers like yourself, there were lots of people from the financial services universe in general, the regulators or authorities or policymakers. Have you seen over the last five or 10 years or whatever it is, have you seen things emerge and develop and change or what have you seen? So, I mean, that's a, it's a great question, right? Because it's changed in so many ways and yet in some ways it's still the same. Mm. Right. So I, I think before, you know, and, and you know this as well as anyone, you would start talking about this topic and Unless you were among friends, so to speak, people would shut down or they'd be like, oh, I heard about that. That's a scam. Or what are you even talking about? So I was the eccentric family member and often the eccentric colleague uh, for a long time. And now it seems that, you know, there's obviously been such a mainstream acceptance um, or at least awareness that people really take it seriously. And so I think people's eyes light up and, and they perk up when you start talking about digital mm. assets instead of being like, okay, that's, that's a scam. At the same time, though, I think the same energy, really the excitement of being on the cutting edge, that's still there. Mm. And working with founders and others, and even, you know, they could be large financial institutions that are just starting to dip their toe in the water. They're excited too. Mm. And so that contagious energy is still there. And is it is it something, I mean, it develops so quickly, right? I mean, everything is emerging and developing, so lightning, lightning um, speeds, much, much, fa- much faster than um, people can track and follow it sort of accurately uh, day to day. 
Is that something that is more difficult for lawyers or practitioners or anything to keep on top of? Or is it something that happens naturally? Um, how, how do you keep on top of the developments of the pace of that happening? So I think, I think you have to love it, mm. right? If you're just thinking of it like, okay, what's coming out next? What's coming out next? And it's a chore, then maybe this isn't the right space for you. But mm. if you're looking at it like an unfolding universe and, you know, development after development, it all makes sense as part of a story. Mm. If you can follow, if you think back from like early days and then through the ICO boom and all sorts of things, to me, it's like, okay, well then this happened and then the next part of the story is this and then the next development is this. So I, I think if you love it, then it's almost like, and I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV, uh, but you know, there are certain shows over the years that I've gotten into where I look forward to the next episode and I feel like that's how I feel about the space. I, I'll tell you another analogy, just because you've mentioned TV shows. Um, I'd say like, you know, Maverick, like literally Top Gun. I mean, keeping on the front edge of things as they're happening really needs that sort of appetite and that ambition and that push. And I think that's something that you definitely see. All of the right people who work in this universe, I think, they're all like quasi-mavericks. And quasi-mavericks from a government perspective, quasi-mavericks from a regulatory perspective, not trying to fit everything into existing blocks, but building new blocks. And it, But it's so difficult. And one of the questions I had for you, Josh, is I mean, you're you know, very successful in your practice, also a mom of five, I think. And how, how, do, you, how do you find the balance? These are some of the challenges, right? It's cutting edge stuff, pace of development. How, how do you think or manage that? So it's funny that you ask about balance because when I, when I talk about this, I really, I don't think it's possible to find balance. To me, I, I've been really fortunate in that I found something that I love and I'm passionate about and I integrate it into my life. Mm. So, you know, you're my friend, but you're also my colleague in the space, you know, and my clients. They're also my friends in many cases. And so I, I think in that sense, there's a lot of integration, but I think also, and I say this to, to young lawyers just across the board, whether it's in our space or not, you know, there are going to be some days where you're riding the wave. Now, I've never surfed in my life, and you know me, I'm a little bit clumsy, so I'm never going to be surfing probably. But, you know, there's some days where I imagine myself surfing along, riding the wave. And then there's other days where, you know, the water just literally crashes over me. And so the thing that I always say to people is, you have to love the water. You have to enjoy swimming because that's that's what you're choosing to do. This is what you're choosing for your life. So I absolutely love my kids. I treasure them. I treasure my family. And you know what? I also treasure our space and being able to have intellectual stimulation and relationships and just, you know, being part of something bigger as well. Absolutely. And, and do you think your kids are young and lots of people have young kids? Do you think that they're coming to understand what you do sort of more accurately? Are they interested? Are things developing from like an education perspective, generally speaking, for young people? Or do you think they still, I mean, talking about like 18 year olds, do they think of this as still like a speculative environment? Or do they look at the tech? Do they believe in the opportunities? I mean, where, where, do, you, where do you see people and, and your kids, I suppose, to an extent? So it's really interesting that you ask that because you know, as as you know, my kids are widely different in age. So my youngest is five. My oldest is 26. 
So those are different generations, mm. right? So my oldest daughter, with what she's been doing um, with the ICC for many years, she's actually, she knows a lot of the same people that I knew do from our space, uh, just because of interest in digital assets, you know, more generally. Um, and so for someone like her who who is, you know, into her career, she's actually going to be planning, she's hosting an event in Egypt, actually, just coming up for climate change. But for that sort of thing, she absolutely understands what I do. Um, and it's been a real thrill to have someone be like, hey, I, I came across your daughter. You know, whereas for, for my younger kids, I think they're approaching it, obviously, from a different perspective. They don't really know what I do, although they do sometimes you know, say that their mom on the phone, I'm on a call, which I'm like, okay, great mom. <laughs> but, you know, one thing I think is really interesting is, and I don't know how I feel about this, actually. I was at one of those machines, you know, you put in like a quarter and you get out like a little toy. Mm-hmm. Um, and my nine-year-old, maybe about six months ago, she got something out and it had a little dog on it. And she was like, oh, it's a doge. And I was like, oh, wow. what did you just say? Wow. <laughs> And I, I was like, how do you know that? And I guess it she must know it from Roblox or something like that, or she does Minecraft as well. But, you know, this really, like, what we may see as a, a process of integrating people's minds, you know, over time, at a younger age, their their facility, not just with, with things like coding and, and being in an area that might we might describe as a metaverse and, and building something there, but really some of the very terminology that we use... Um, it's just sort of going to them without my even necessarily mm. realizing it. Mm-hmm. And do you think this is a difficult question or like a prediction, a future prediction? Your youngest or the five-year-old, I mean, do you think that in 10 or 15 years' time she'll be using the technology just without even knowing that it, what it is or how it exists? Is it going to become so integrated to everything that we do um, in the same way that no one really understands whatever the language of the internet, but we all sort of use mobile applications, et cetera. Will that happen for blockchain-related technology, or are we 20 years or 30 years away from that? Difficult, random prediction. I th- I think it's happening now. I mean, I think when we start thinking about things like whether it's, you know, I'm not, I shouldn't go through naming all sorts of different metaverse ideas, right? But when I see my my younger kids, you know, they're just logging on to things, whether for school or just to meet up with friends online. Mm. I mean, it's happening. And mm. I mean, stepping back from, from my kids for a second, I often think, you know, in earlier years, a lot of time was spent about what is the use case for blockchain, right? Holding aside digital mm. assets for a second, because that's what people used to do, right? They'd say, mm. not Bitcoin blockchain for a while, and then, you know, switch back and forth between those those sorts of things. Um, but you know, as I as I've come to think of it over time, and when we look at all sorts of different technology developing alongside of it, when you think of all the IoT devices and things like that that we deal with every day, what do they need? They need secure data sets, mm. right? What provides secure data sets? A blockchain. So I think there's a lot of things just from even just an infrastructure perspective where things are going to be built in and we'll be using them in ways that we're not even necessarily aware of, just like we use our phones. And while sure. some might know how it all works, hopefully patent lawyers and, and things like that um, and inventors, uh, you know, some of us just, you know. Yeah, yeah. And do you, do you think, Josh, you're based in the US, obviously, although you travel around a lot. And that's what I wanted to ask. So you're... You obviously know what's happening in the US inside out, but you were, we were talking before, you were in Germany, you've been in Portugal recently, all over the place. Um, 
do you see like the way that countries are reacting to this um, slightly different? Are, are there more sort of adaptive approaches and more restrictive approaches? Or do you see it as a sort of global playing field at the moment? Or are there emerging places or areas of the world that are advancing quicker than others? I don't know. What, what do you think? It's a great question. All your questions have been great. Hence, like every time I'm saying it's a great question. You know, what well, we all know, obviously, of certain jurisdictions where there's a ban, right, on digital mm -hmm. asset linked activities. Um, and then there are some like Gibraltar that have been far ahead, um, you know, really trying to be at the forefront and being at the forefront for a while. I think the ones that have been at the forefront, um, whether it's Gibraltar, whether it's um, Switzerland and others, many of those continue you know, to be to be places where people find that they can have certainty mm. about, you know, whether they can proceed in a particular manner or not and where they can approach regulators and have conversations. Mm. I think that, you know, we're seeing great strides throughout Europe, obviously, um, and, you know, my colleagues in the UK, there's a lot that's going on there as well. To me, um, I, I do think it's a global playing field, obviously, but one where it's not, I don't see really a harmonization happening yet. Mm. I mean, unless you think of what's happening, like EU specific, like in that sense, it's, it's harmonized. But really, when we do, um, you know, none of this, by the way, is legal advice or investment no. advice. Let me just say that. Um, but when we do look globally for clients and others just at, at what even token classifications. My mm. gosh, when I first met you, we were trying to figure yep. out token classifications. And we still haven't figured them out. Mm. right? Because what ends up happening is, you know, colleagues from various jurisdictions may say, oh, that's a crypto asset. And I may say, that's a completely generic term in mm -hmm. the US. <laughs> like, how did you offer it? How did you market it? How did you sell it? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's still where a lot of our conversations, just thinking more, more broadly um, across jurisdictions, where it gets hung up a little bit. Because mm -hmm. certain jurisdictions, you can look at a token, not that you're really looking at a token, you know, but you can look at the characteristics that are, or the rights that are being ascribed to a token and say, I know what that is. I know how that should be treated. Whereas within the U.S., as as I'm sure you, you know, um, better you know than most, you know, there's a lot of testing of where jurisdictional boundaries end, mm. right? And often it seems like there's actually competition about mm. where those jurisdictional boundaries end. Mm. So I I think we're still focused because of the way our our laws are written in many cases on what is the activity, mm. and I think until we can find a way to kind of square that with jurisdictions where you're actually looking like, no, what is the asset here? What is the the thing designed to do? Mm. It's gonna be a challenge. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, I use the term like regulatory arbitrage or whatever you wanna call it, but um, there are the right groups that always look for that, the highest degree of certainty and the highest standard. And there are, there are others that try and avoid that. And there are countries that try and, facilitate things too easily and they create problems for, for themselves. Actually, we've seen that quite quite a few times. Absolutely. Um, and that's not good for the ecosystem in general. So, I mean, I'd love to see, I'd love to see a global standard. I don't think that's going to happen. But I'll ask you about one statement, which is, I mean, it's not a new statement, but the, the FSB, they always use the same principle, which is, you know, same activity, same risk, same regulation. So do you, do you, I mean, what do you think? Do you agree with that? Is this something, should everything that is developing the, this new frontier or technology frontier, for whatever you want to call it, should, should it all operate within existing rules? Or 
is there that requirement for, let's call it, regulatory innovation to develop new standards? What, what, what do you think? Difficult question. It is a difficult question, and and definitely one where I've heard positions on both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, including from, for example, former regulators. You know, I I do think that um, on the one hand, in the absence of anything else. You know, we do need to look at the existing frameworks, right? I don't think that there is, that we should look at it like, oh, there's a legal vacuum, mm. at least within the U.S., which is, you know, obviously mm. my my jurisdiction. Um, not just mine, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Uh, you know, the idea that something would fall outside of a regulation and that some law wouldn't apply to it, that's very, very foreign to, to my ears, right? In terms of, of go-forward risks, I do think that you know there is a place for for having innovative laws, mm. right? That that do embrace um, not just different opportunities, which I think that's important, you know, to to know what other benefits may flow, but also you know different types of risks that maybe we haven't seen. Yeah, maybe exactly. it's not the same yeah. activity. Maybe it's not the same risk. Yeah. And so I I think that that's important. Um, I, I do think, though, that the one thing I'm a little wary of is where people, and this happens in the U.S. a lot, and I do understand where it's coming from, and I do think some of it is true, where they may say, oh, it's unclear what we should do. It's unclear. We don't know. Mm. Well, guess what? If you go talk to a regulator, you might get a better sense, mm. right? But I think a lot of times um, within the U.S., people will say there's a lack of regulatory clarity, well, maybe they just don't like what the regulators are asking them to do mm. or would expect them to do. Mm. And so I, I do think sometimes that when we talk about, okay, new laws, it's not because we need new laws. It's because people don't like the result of the existing laws. Mm. So I think that's a balance. I do think some of the sandbox approaches around the world um, are are very interesting, you know, and I, I think they may... Um, they may offer great promise, but but really, I think that if you have a principles-based approach, which mm. you know that's my understanding of, yeah. of what you guys do in, in Gibraltar, and frankly, in the U.S., we would say you know our securities laws are principles-based, uh, although some some may disagree. But I think that offers a lot of flexibility too. And so I guess one of the challenges is if you come up with new laws and they're too prescriptive. At what point do they not apply, mm. right? At what point does the technology shift or emerge in a different way or unfold in a way that you didn't expect? And then all of a sudden you've created these very prescriptive, bespoke laws that no longer fully apply or no longer fully um, embrace the area. Mm. Whereas I do think if you do, if you are able to stick with principles, that allows a lot more flexibility in terms of, of what the future may bring and not mm. having to to revisit your laws. Yeah, and there's also the, 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 the threat of some of the developments. So it's almost like um, uh, technology infringement. So you're, you, know, you build a system or you run a website or whatever it is and it operates in this way and now you want to use a, a new technology, um, a blockchain-based infrastructure. Now you're within the scope of financial services regulation. That, that's difficult as well. Uh, the, the crossover's um, super difficult. Um, and, that, and that, I think, to an extent, you know, there are things within the EU that lots of people agree with. There's some 
that not everyone agrees with. So, but it's a it's a developing sort of conversation. Um, Josh, and, and going back sort of off the legal bit, but you're you're um, you're also super involved with women in blockchain, um, and I, I'm interested. But I was talking before about education generally, so education as a base layer for people understanding what what's happening in the space or you know the application of use of new technology. Um, is is there in this new emerging industry is there an equal opportunity across the board? Or do you see that as something that's slightly restricted? Or I'm just curious because because of your involvement with with, with that association and group. So it's it's really interesting. Um, I would say that compared to many other spaces, you know, I, well I've said for a long time, come on in, the water's warm. You know, um, to bring back the water analogy, I think there's lots of opportunity because things haven't been set in stone, right? There haven't been players who have been in our space for that long. Right. I mean, maybe going back, you know, 10 years or so mm. or fewer. Um, so it's all relative. I think there is a lot of opportunity. I think one of the challenges, and this is a challenge that I think crosses many industries and, and sectors. So it's not, it's not um, unique to our industry. But it, it just often is when you think of, and actually I wrote a post about this the other day on yeah. LinkedIn. You know, just this idea of what power looks like. Mm or what influence exactly. looks like. And I can't tell you the number of times, and I, I do this too, I'll be like, wow, you're so much taller than I thought, right? But people are like, you're so much smaller than I thought. Or the other day, and this is the post that I, I'm referring to, where someone said that I seemed so much more powerful online. And you know, to which I responded you know, online like, newsflash, I'm not gonna beat you in arm wrestling. You know, so, so I think that's, but that's a challenge that goes beyond our industry. Um, there's a, a quote that I put in that post. I think it's by Claire Booth Luce, mm -hmm. where um, she'd been complimented a long time ago on having a masculine mind. And she said, thought has no sex. One either thinks or one does not. And so I think part of, um, part of the challenge just across the board is to understand that there's all different kinds of power. You know, there's all different kinds of influence. And, you know, who you think of when you close your eyes, you know, what does your lawyer look like? What does your banker look like? What does your digital asset, you know, founder look like? I think what we just need to do is keep having more positive um, examples, right? Because women are doing this, mm. you know, and, and certainly um, I think one of the things as the technology emerges, as we've seen with AI and really faulty algorithms, where you know perhaps certain things may not recognize a particular kind of human being or that someone is a human being, right? I think having inputs from diverse sets, that's just one way of reflecting how, how important it is to have diversity of thought. And mm. that is not just women, mm. um, but it's not, you know, there still are a lot of rooms where you walk in and you may be the only woman. And on one hand, that can be a great opportunity it's also a, a responsibility, and hopefully, you know, fewer of those rooms in the future will, mm. will be. But that it's way. it's such a good quote. I, I love that, and I did read it, and I couldn't agree more. Like there is no, I mean, thought has no has no sex. But you're you're, uh, you know, and sometimes we stand next to each other. I'm not particularly tall. You're not particularly tall. Um, but you're definitely in this space uh, a powerhouse, and that, that's what I've that's what that's what I I've told oh, you. And you know yeah. that that's. Same. That's absolutely true. Um, 
And the other thing, just so going beyond that, um, and you talk a little bit about women, blockchain, et cetera, and that, that grouping, where, where do you see, um, you've also been involved with the Wharton, it's a cipher accelerator program, right? Yes. And the reason I'm asking that is, um, where, where do you see the actual sort of application and use uh, of the technology in that kind of accelerator space? They've been going back, uh, talked about this before, but going back to the days of old, 2017, the crazy ICOs and all of that stuff was happening. You know, lots of, lots of ideas were being banded around, lots of things. But in terms of your real case sort of accelerator programs or things that you've been involved with, where, where do you see the actual application and use of the tech and the way that excites you? today within that kind of program? So again, like my my idea of what excites me is just, I, I get excited by people's ideas, right? I get excited by people's energy. What I do think is, you know, I, I probably shouldn't single out projects within that, that accelerator. Although I will say, you know, applications are open for the second cohort. I think the deadline is December 15th. What I, maybe I'll say a couple of things about that. On one hand, what I what I have to offer for that, other than you know, encouragement, um, is really an understanding of the regulatory interplay, right? So a lot of the ways in which I interact with those teams would be to explain, okay, you're thinking of issuing a digital asset. Here's all things. Here's your parade of horribles and wonderfuls, you know, that you need to bear in mind. I will say one of the projects from the first cohort, Roofstock, mm-hmm. they um, they recently had you know the first sale on a blockchain of a piece of real estate, um, and so that's that's pretty exciting, you know, to be able to buy a house, you know, on on a blockchain and and have it tokenized. So I think that's um, and that's something that we had been hearing. Of, you know, I remember early days people saying, "Oh, and you can have real estate on a blockchain, and you can do all sorts of things." And if you think back, I think. It was coming out of Illinois that there was a pilot program about titles mm-hmm. um, years ago. Can't remember the name of the gentleman who was um, instrumental in that at the moment, but but yeah, actually seeing some of this come to fruition, I think is fantastic. And I think one of the exciting things, really, about the accelerator is, and this is maybe no pun intended or pun intended, but. The acceleration, mm. you know, by having input from people who know the law, for example, or who have been doing, you know, VC activity or can give guidance about, you know, a variety of different areas um, through the, you know, the other senior advisors for the program. I think that really is a is a help. And I think a lot of times founders, you know, there are a lot of projects out there. And one of the things about the work the Wharton program is it's non-dilutive, mm. right? So mm. founders have every incentive um, to to apply, I think. And I mean, just bringing that to market faster. Now, who knows? Maybe they would have brought it in the same amount of time. We never know. Mm. So I don't want to um, have the program take, you know, credit away from from the founders. But I do think that the point of an accelerator is to help really put together all the the parts that founders need in order to take things to the next level. Mm. And that's certainly what we've seen just in the first cohort. And that, that the roof, uh, on one, one extreme, you have like, let's call it the accelerator program. Um, and Roofstack is a really good example of that. Um, and on the other end, you're also involved, I think you chair the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance. 
or one of the working groups there. Yes. Um, that's Wall Street. So that's a complete other, the other end of the scale. Um, to what extent do you see those industries using the technology, investigating it or getting more involved or do they still see it as a, an inhibitor or competition or I don't know, what, just general sort of take on all of that? Sure. And I, I don't chair the whole Wall Street right. Blockchain no, know, Alliance. Know, That's Ron Quaranta. Um, but I, I am on the board and I chair the legal working group since yep. 2016. Um, so for that, you know, that's a wide variety of folks. So that could be, you know, the legal working group is obviously lawyers, right? And there are, are large banks and traditional financial institutions, as well as, you know, digital native companies that are part of the Wall Street Blockchain Alliance. What I would say is, yes, there's been a huge increase in the activity and the investment and the, you know, mind share of institutions, large institutions, institutional investors, but also, you know, financial institutions and others for a long time. I mean, I, I told you when I first got into the space, I was hearing about big banks doing things mm. potentially, you know, that's been on the horizon for so long. And so I think we're really seeing now moves, not just by those original early mover banks, that I would have thought, frankly, that the banks would have been leading the charge mm. if I go back years and 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 my entree to this space. But I, I see a whole variety of global banks that are really trying to, to push ahead, whether it's trying to um, contemplate things that they may have done outside of the US, for example, tokenizing bonds, you know, and thinking about how something like that might work in the US, to coming up with digital asset frameworks for within their institutions. I think we're seeing a huge amount of, of energy behind that. I think also think, seeing things like um, the joint venture, the KKR Securitize mm. announcement with a tokenized fund. I mean, people are beginning to look at, at the opportunities in a very different way. And what I think is really fascinating is this isn't just in the boom times, mm. you know? I mean, I, I hate the term crypto winter. I didn't want to, you know, resign myself to using it. I was trying to say crypto hurricane and all kinds of rebrands of this. But even if you say that we are in a crypto winter, I haven't seen a slowdown in the interest. Yeah. And I think that's different from from prior crypto winters. Yeah, it, it is. And, and it's so interesting because you mentioned like some of the bank points or questions or Wall Street generally, that's very, very wide, obviously. Um, it, it, it is interesting. People sometimes forget, like back in the early, early days of the internet, there were loads of banks that didn't want to adopt internet banking as a, as a concept. And actually before then, there were lots of banks that didn't want to adopt sort of ATM uh, machines as a, a non-face-to-face way of retracting money from an account. So they're not always the fastest movers, but as it becomes more and more relevant, becomes becomes more and more critical, I think, not to be left uh, behind. But on Wall Street, the, the, the question that I, there was a bit of a buzz years ago around digital securities. Uh, and that was like going to be the next frontier and everything was moving. But is, is that still emerging? Is that still a discussion that's being had in, in that context? Or it seems like a very obvious application of the technology for, you know, efficient settlement systems. But I don't know what, what, what is happening. So definitely discussions still remain ongoing. I think some of the challenges among others, right? include, okay, secondary trading. Mm. Where is this going to happen? You know, as as banks and others contemplate issuing digitalized securities, um, traditional securities, 
they're asking some questions like, do I need a completely different program or can I modify an existing program? If I modify an existing program, how many consents do I need? How many other people's lawyers do I need to deal with? Um, another big question is, is this really a change in the plumbing or a change where we're going to do away with the paper? If you do away with the paper, guess what? Enforceability opinions can become that much more difficult. Mm. So it's really, there's, there's a lot of thought going into it. Um, but again, like a lot of, I think the delay has been just in terms of where are you going to trade a digitalized security? Are you going to trade it on an alternative trading system, for example, an ATS? Well, you know, how much liquidity is there, right? How, and, and I think this is something where it's continuing to grow and will continue to grow. But these are some of the things that I've seen mm. folks grappling with. I do think, you know, that things are still going to move in that direction. And I definitely see outside of the U.S., where there have been, for example, digitalized bond offerings, mm. that that has, um, has occurred. So I, I think that will con continue. I do also, I wonder though, with a lot of the big banks and others, not just big banks, but you know, large public companies, household names of a different sort, you know, they're all contemplating entering the space. And whether it's through NFTs, yeah. right? And, and this idea of a metaverse, whether involving NFTs or not, or as brand extensions, um, there's there's a lot of appetite. There's a lot of appetite for for folks to get involved with DAOs, including by public companies, which is kind of really interesting because when you think about public companies maximizing shareholder value, and then DAOs and having you know a different kind of collective ownership, mm. it's um it's pretty interesting. Actually, that reminds me of something that I wanted to say. Go on, go on. Um, just in general, I wanted to make sure that I said this. I think. You know, one of the one of the challenges, also one of the opportunities, is that as our space gets more mature, you know, there are some players who have been around for a while and who have seen the peaks and valleys and and the legal developments and and times when, for example, certain guidance was really cutting edge. Like, whoa, there's there's an enforcement action for the first time in a particular jurisdiction. You know, article written, article written. You know. And then we have others who have great energy, but they're newer to the space. Or there are concepts that, and I, my friend Angie Dalton, I don't, I don't know if you know her, but she's very active in the space as well. And sometimes she has a really good saying, which is so true. And I'll give an example. You know, she, it's something along the lines of, you know, they say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. But actually in our space, history <laughs> is exactly the same. In, in some some instances, like if you think back to um, the U.S. Mm -hmm. and the 21A report, the SEC's the Dow report, mm -hmm. right, which was really their first line in the sand enforcement action, even though it was styled as an investigative report because the Dow had disbanded by that time. I won't go into what the Dow is. I know you know that. Um, well, you know, it's amazing because that case or that, that instance was where the SEC said, look, this was a virtual venture fund. It was issuing securities, notwithstanding that it's a DAO. We found an issuer, you know, and the digital assets that are trading, you know, from that, they are securities. They need to be traded on an alternative trading system or a national securities exchange. All sorts of things like that, you know, mm. very familiar by now. Doesn't matter where it's located if you're selling to U.S. persons, you have to worry about U.S. laws. And then what is the rage now, five years later, 
DAOs, right? And what are these DAOs doing? Often investing, mm -hmm. right? And so it's kind of like, yes, there is there are new exciting areas, but many of the people who have moved in, they may not even be aware of the guidance. They may have heard of the DAO mm -hmm. report, but they may have no idea that it was about a virtual venture fund. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of the, to keep with the water metaphor of earlier, you know, part of the waves. As there are waves of interest, part of our jobs, I think, is to keep saying, oh, wait, we've seen this before. Let's let's tell you about it and let's see what new learnings we can have and mm -hmm. what new legal developments may have happened. Mm -hmm. But really, sometimes it's easy to forget that these people are just coming in now. They may not be aware of what came before. Mm -hmm. And so it's, as much as I may be like, oh, I've talked about the Dow report for years now, you still have to keep talking about it mm. with every new person. Mm. And that that's a super interesting point in, in a couple of contexts. One is like you're talking about DAOs, um, but there are lots of there are lots of other issues. And you mentioned crypto winter, or we can call it hurricane season or, or whatever it might be. But um one of them could be related to DAO-related activity or whatever it is, but there are lots of wider issues that have come around in, in the in the last 12 months. Algorithmic-based stabilization, the famous sort of Luna thing was a big one not that long ago. Um, then um, there have been I don't know, Celsius, lending, repo lending. There's all, lots of different decentralized infrastructure that isn't decentralized or decentralized in name only. And people seem to think that they can just you know, add the word decentralization to anything and fall outside of every you know, regulatory perimeter in the world, lots of exactly. things that are happening around that, tornado cash, uh, privacy-related problems, OFAC sanctions, smart contracts, so, but lots of issues as well. Where, 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 How do you contextualize the opportunities that exist, the exciting stuff, Roofstack on the one sort of accelerator example, through to all of these issues? Like where, where are things going to be panning out? Are we going to be having more issues for the next 12 months or is it a, a, a flat time? I don't know. What do you think? Wow. So my crystal ball tells me, I mean, I think we're going to continue to have issues, but I don't think they're going to be industry stopping issues. I think this is just people starting to think about implications and moving past. I mean, as soon as we start having successful companies as we have now, mm -hmm. right, and people moving beyond an initial capital raise to actually deliver what they may have promised or, or something like that, I think we're gonna to continue to see new issues unfold. And that's just the natural order of things because we're gonna have new activities, new new developments pushing up against existing laws that maybe we didn't even get to yet. Right? If you think about what a lot of the enforcement actions have related to, they've related still to the initial sale. They've related still to an ICO or something like that. And so we've never, it's, it's like we've been regulating the same mm. step, whereas, you know, when you get to things like crypto lending and other activities, I mean, things like that, people in many cases, they weren't even reading the terms, right? Or they weren't even, you know, they would sign loan agreements, master loan agreements, you know, with, with different term sheets attached. And they would just take the position, okay, we understand from the lender, it's take it or leave it. Okay, well, what do you mean you understand from the lender, it's take it or leave it? is this a secured loan? Like you're mm. not going to negotiate it. You're not going to really understand what the implications are. And so I think earlier this year, you know, prior to some of the insolvencies and, and the, obviously you mentioned the Terra Luna tumble and things like that. It was an era of 
of what people saw as opportunity and I think FOMO, mm. right? And so saying, I need that liquidity. I need that liquidity. I'm just going to sign this. You know, I, I did try and negotiate some of the lending agreements and I got incredible pushback on what would be normally very um, traditional provisions like permitted lien, mm. right? The idea that, that you could have another lien on, on certain assets, you know, that was very foreign. That was very, you know, unacceptable mm. in some instances. And so I think now people have seen, okay, I do need to read the language. I do need to understand what's happening. And I, I think there have been as well, you know, just more broadly than just crypto lending, but, you know, with crypto derivatives and, and things like that, where there's a hunger to have some kind of standardization, right? Mm. Not have every mm. contract be, dis, be bespoke. And I mean, I think what we saw in many cases was, um, at least with crypto lending, people, they, I shouldn't say people, you know, participants, because we're all people, right? There were provisions that were, were tough. They were thorny. And so people would say, oh, don't worry about that. And by people, I mean lenders, right? They'd say, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that airdrop provision and whether it works and what it's requiring you to do, because we would call the loan before that would ever happen. Right? In a mature industry, we don't want to have agreements like that. Right? Mm. We don't want to have provisions that we're just going to conceptually pretend don't exist because they're a little more challenging. And I think this is requiring a thinking through. We're seeing it with um, you know, projects that are going on relating to crypto deri derivatives and, and trading confirmations and things like that, where people are like, okay, what is the price source? Mm. You, know, you can have so many price sources in digital assets, mm. right? What, what even is the concept of a business day if you're dealing with digital assets in 24-hour worldwide markets? Mm. You know, so very basic concepts I think we're revisiting. Um, and I think that this is, again, part of a maturing industry. Mm. I think things like algorithmic stablecoins, that's a tougher one mm. because if we truly have decentralized ecosystems, truly decentralized, you know, with open source technology, and, you know, lots of people interested in the space, you could have projects that grow up in an ecosystem that are completely distinct from the, from the, the party or parties who initially launched that network, mm. right? I think up until now, we've seen a number of instances where it, it was the original sort of founders of a particular blockchain ecosystem that may have in some cases launched a stablecoin, whether algorithmic or otherwise. But I think it's it's a much more challenging issue when it's just a third party within an ecosystem developing one. Hmm. And then, you know, of course, the question of what do you do if it turns out that an algorithm doesn't work or that there's some hmm. other kind of challenge? What responsibility, if any, within a decentralized ecosystem do you have to protect the ecosystem? Mm. And so I think that's, it's almost like, you know, the, if you think about the financial crisis from, from the past, right, um, in, you know, the early 2000s, if you imagine that and the possibility that things like that could happen in various blockchain ecosystems, it really calls into question, okay, can something be within an ecosystem too big to fail? Mm. Right. So, uh, so I do think um, actually a lot of the stablecoin legislation, potential legislation that's being batted around, or in the case of New York DFS that's been passed, um, I think it's I think it's important mm. um, 
and I, I know you didn't ask me this question, but I'm, I'm just saying the reason I think it's particularly important, and this may be different from our conversation earlier where we were talking about existing regulation versus new regulation, is that with concepts like stable coins, people are expecting them to be stable, mm. right? With, with digital assets more generally, I think the expectation is they're going to be volatile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and so I do think protecting not just consumers and, and retail, but also founders, builders, people who are building. I mean, think about that. If you're building a DeFi project, mm. maybe you're not aware necessarily of the risks of mm. what you think is the foundation mm. of a stablecoin. Mm. And so I, I do think um, that potentially is important. And I think disclosure more generally. I, th I think I think that um, I think that you know. I, one example, and Zappo is a group offering sort of the banking layer and the VASP layer, and the sort of equalization of standards is something that's going to happen more and more. Um, you talked about the derivatives question or algorithmic-based you know, disclosures or whatever it might be. I think it's going to slowly keep um, moving in that direction. There's going to be a much, much closer. What it needs is mavericks. and It needs the right people pushing the right messages to the right people in the right way. And it needs um, authorities and, and, and politicians and everyone else to open their eyes and ears to be willing to learn and adapt and, and change things as well. And that's really why I think having people like you, I'm super happy to be involved a little bit in that as well. Um, I think it's super, super critical. Um, and I don't want to take any more time, Joshua. I just want to thank you. I mean, today it's been absolutely fantastic having you. Thanks, any you. closing remarks or anything, but um, it's been awesome having you today. Thanks so much, Joey. And I think for you to say you do a little bit of that, I think that's the understatement <laughs> of the millennium. We do our, we I all think, do our bits. Yeah. Cogs in the system. No, you're pretty amazing. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I do have one question for you, which is, you know, the show is called Mavericks, right? And of course, as I noted, like not being very mavericky, wearing a black suit, but I'm just curious, what does Maverick mean to you? That's a good question. Um, so I can think of that in lots of different ways, but I'm going to go back to the Top Gun uh, example. I love that movie. I love uh, Maverick in that movie. So I don't know if you've seen Top Gun 2. Oh, yeah. yeah brilliant. I mean, that, that must be the best movie ever made. So there you have, um, you have a guy, and he's pushing the limits. Um, but why is he pushing the limits? He's pushing them within the right remit, and he's doing it for the right purposes, uh, for the right outcomes. So I think of Mavericks in, in that kind of context, people who can push from within the limits, doing things that people said were impossible, like in, in that movie, and doing it for the, for the right reasons, which is the benefit of that team in that particular example. So yeah, that's my silly example. Well, I think that describes you really well. And I just have to say, I'm really honored and thankful um, as a friend and as a colleague that you oh, thanks for watching. Thanks for watching Mavericks, brought to you by Zappo Bank. Please like and subscribe for more episodes.